So we are continuing in our series on the life of David. We are uh, in 2 Samuel now, and we are in chapter 14. So if you want to open your Bible to 2 Samuel chapter 14, I'll give you just a moment to turn there if you're going to find it in your own Bible. If you don't have your Bible or you're having a hard time finding it, that's okay, because we'll have the text up on the screens next to me, so no one will get left behind. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, and starting in verse 1, it says, Joab, son of Zariah, realized that the king's mind was on Absalom. So Joab sent someone to Tekoa to bring a wise woman from there. He told her, pretend to be in mourning, dress in a mourning clothes, and don't put on any oil. Act like a woman who has been mourning for the dead for a long time. Go to the king and speak these words to him. Then Joab told her exactly what to say. When the woman from Tekoa came to the king, she fell face down to the ground, paid homage, and said, Help me, your majesty. What's the matter? The king asked her. Sadly, I am a widow. My husband died, she said. Your servant had two sons. They were fighting in the field with no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. Now the whole clan has risen up against your servant and said, Hand over the one who killed his brother so that we may put him to death for the life of the brother he murdered. We will eliminate the heir. They would extinguish my one remaining ember by not preserving my husband's name or posterity on earth. The king told the woman, Go home. I will issue a command on your behalf. Then the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord the king, may any blame be on me and my father's family, and may the king and his throne be innocent. Whoever speaks to you, he said, bring him to me. He will not trouble you again, she replied. Please, may the king invoke the Lord your God, so that the avenger of blood will not increase the loss, and they will not eliminate my son. As the Lord lives, he vowed, not a hair of your son will fall to the ground. Then the woman said, please, may your servant speak a word to the Lord my king. Speak, he replied. The woman asked, Why have you devised something similar against the people of God? When the king spoke as he did about this matter, he has pronounced his own guilt. The king has not brought back his own banished one. We will certainly die and be poured out like water on the ground, which can't be recovered. But God would not take away a life. He would devise plans so that the the one banished from him does not remain banished. Now, therefore, I've come to present this matter to my lord the king, Because the people have made me afraid. Your servant thought, I must speak to the king. Perhaps the king will grant his servant's request. The king will surely listen in order to keep his servant from the grasp of this man who would eliminate both me and my son from God's inheritance. Your servant thought, may the word of my lord the king bring relief. For my lord the king is able to discern the good and the bad. Like the angel of God, may the lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, I'm going to ask you something. Don't conceal it from me. Let my lord the king speak, the woman replied. The king asked, did Joab put you up to all this? The woman answered, as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or left from all my lord the king says. Yes, your servant Joab is the one who gave orders to me. He told your servant exactly what to say. Joab, your servant, has done this to address the issue indirectly. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angels of God, knowing everything on earth. Then the king said to Joab, 
I hereby grant this request. Go, bring back the young man Absalom. So, imagine that there is a, a small town, and they find that their water supply, which comes from the nearby river, is toxic. What they once relied on for washing and for drinking is now polluted, and so it's making them sick, and it's, uh, it's damaging their clothes, and it, it is, it's causing damage in their homes as they use it to clean. And they, they find out that their water is toxic, and so what they do is they, they look upstream. What could have made it toxic? And they find 10 miles down the river upstream, there's a factory that polluted the water with harmful chemicals. Just like if there was to be a factory that polluted the water with harmful chemicals and it goes downstream and it brings about all these disastrous, damaging, even killing or lethal effects on people downstream, so we learn through the life of David that sin has downstream effects, as Jacob taught us last week. What is happening here in the family drama uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 14, and as is going to continue for a while, in the life of David, is because of David's sin back in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the famous story of David and Bathsheba, whenever Nathan the prophet comes to pronounce God's, uh, God's disciplining and consequence of, for the sin, uh, to pronounce it to David, one of the things that he says to them is, because of what you have done, he says, the sword will never leave your house. He's saying there's going to be conflict in your home. And so what we see happening here in this chapter is the consequences. It's the pollution in the water that have come down or have come downstream from 2 Samuel chapter 11 and David's great sinful acts. What we learn through this is that for all of the leadership, for all of the accomplishments, and for all of the victories that we saw in David's life over two books of the Old Testament, they can be severely damaged. They can be overshadowed by sin. We learn about the danger of sin, the lethality of sin, and how sin, like we said before, can, can affect not just our, uh, ourselves and our inner life, but have outward effects that bring damage to our relationships around us. And so, as we look, as we continue, now that we have seen um, David and Bathsheba, that story, and then Nathan coming to uh, confront him over it, and we continue to look at the life of David after this, we're going to continue to see the downstream effects of David's sin. But as we go, we're going to still be learning about what God desires of us and seeing all kinds of practical lessons. Now, we come to this story here. I only read about half of it, where, um, where Joab hatches this plot to go get Absalom and bring him back into the kingdom. Because, just a quick refresher, in the chapter before this, there was a son of David named Amnon who had raped his half-sister named Tamar. Tamar was a half-sister of uh, Amnon because David had many wives and children and sons from these different wives. Now, the full brother of Tamar is named Absalom, the man that we read about here in this chapter. Absalom, whenever he learned about what his brother Amnon did to his sister, is filled with rage and so he waits a few years. He doesn't go and, in the passion of the moment, slay him immediately. Instead, he waits. He's, Absalom is, is intelligent, we're going to see, and he's clever. He waits a few years, and he devises this scheme 
where he brings, uh, he, he gets Absalom, I'm sorry, he gets Amnon to come to his home and to throw a feast for him, but then while he is in a vulnerable state, he murders him. After this, he flees from the kingdom because he is afraid of justice. Because now that he has murdered his brother, though it wasn't justice, it was an act of revenge, right? Let's, let's keep that straight. He flees from the kingdom because he is afraid of justice now coming down upon him. David doesn't really do anything. He's upset by all of it. Uh, he, he, but he's left inactive. Years pass by. Absalom is still in exile, basically still banished from the kingdom. And so Joab decides, you know what, I'm going to try to fix this situation because I can tell that David's mind is still on Absalom. So I'm just going to get Absalom to come back. And so that's what he does here. And that's why he goes and he gets, we don't know the woman's name, it just says a wise woman from Tekoa. He goes and he gets her to come and tell this story to convince David to bring Absalom back into the kingdom. After this, Absalom comes back into the kingdom, but he's still not permitted to see the king, his father, David. And so a few years go by, and now he is just living in the kingdom, and he feels like, well, what am I doing here? I'm not really back in my father's household, I'm not, but I'm also not quite banished. So he's in this weird in-between state, so he forces Joab to try to act again to allow the king to fully reconcile himself to him. Eventually, his plans work. And David uh, reconciles with Absalom instead of bringing justice on Absalom as he should have done. We look at this story, and it's <laughs> there's a lot of not good things happening in the story. Right? I know that's not the most eloquent way to put it. So whenever we look at this story where there's, there's not many godly characters at work, and there's not much God-honoring conduct happening, we come to it and we ask ourselves, what is there to learn from it? When we are seeking wisdom from God's word, we come to a passage like this one, and we say, what wisdom is there to learn from a passage with such little wisdom in it? But that is our project today. That's what we're going to do. And I think through, a lesson, through lessons in contrast, we actually can learn about wisdom from this passage, this chapter, this story that has such little wisdom in it. And so today we're going to, going to learn three lessons about wisdom. All right, let's go in and jump in with the first one. So as I said before, Joab, who was the, the, the head general, the five-star general of David's army, devises this plot to try to get David to move to bring Absalom back into his kingdom because he sees that his mind is still on Absalom. At the, if you go back and you read before, it says that... Um, it talks about this as well at the end of the previous chapter, how uh, David's heart was set uh, on Absalom or that his heart longed for him. It's actually, it's actually kind of confusing the way that it's worded here. What it's talking about uh, in David, David's mind and his heart towards Absalom was that he was, uh, he was heartbroken over the loss of a son, both with Amnon, but then now losing Absalom because of him being banished. But he is also uh, feeling indignation and the pressure of knowing that he needs to bring justice against his son, yet he cannot bring himself to do it. Like I said, the, the wording of, like, of what exactly, and when we look at the Hebrew especially, the, word of what's, the wording of what's going on in David's heart is a little vague, but scholars say that this is our best understanding of what it means. He's heartbroken, 
He knows he needs to bring justice, yet he's, he stays inactive, and he cannot bring himself to do it. But from Joab's perception, he's just looking at his king, and he can tell, whenever you know someone well, you know just by observing them when something's off, right? You can tell whenever their mind's on something, right? Spouses, whenever you look at your husband or wife, you, you can tell when something's on their mind. Sometimes you know what it is, maybe sometimes you don't. But Joab, he knew David well. He knew him really well. And so he could tell that he was still hung up on something, and he believed that it was Absalom. He said, you know what, I'm going to help him to get over it, so I'm going to hatch this plan for him to bring Absalom back into the kingdom. Because if you go and you read the full chapter, what you realize is that Joab didn't do this because he loved Absalom or because he really missed Absalom. I think it was really just pragmatic. He was trying to just get Absalom back into the kingdom so that David would get over it and they could, they could move on. So he gets this wise woman. Now understand, what it means here is not wise in terms of like godly wisdom. This is not a uh, Proverbs 31 woman from Tekoa here. What it really means more is, uh, is this is a wise woman similar to the kind that Saul had gone to visit before the battle at Gilboa. If you remember that story, Saul went to visit someone who's a sorceress. Remember? So this would be someone similar to that. This, I'm not she. She wasn't necessarily a sorceress, but she's in that same realm. She's like, you know, she's a fortune teller type. She's someone who Joab could trust to maybe go and spin a good story, to put on a good act. Someone, note, who knew how to manipulate people and manipulate their emotions. That's what Joab is looking for with this wise woman. So he goes and he gets her, and they hatch this story, and she goes before him. Now, if you've been with us in this series, or if you're familiar with 2 Samuel, What's happening here is oddly similar to a story that we read about just a few chapters before. You remember which one that was? Nathan. The story of David and Bathsheba, and then whenever God sent Nathan to go and confront David over his sin. Because if you remember in that story, the whole dramatic episode between David and Bathsheba and then the murder of Uriah happens, and then months go by. In fact, nine months, because we know Bathsheba was pregnant, Nathan confronted David either right before, right at, or right after the birth of their son. So right there. So about nine months have gone by, and David is complacent. David has committed this gross sin, and it doesn't even be bothering him. So Nathan is sent as a messenger from God to prick David's conscience to action. And here we have someone who is sending a messenger to try to move David to action as well. It's interesting. It's like these parallel stories, but what we need to understand here is that they are not exactly parallels. We have, the, we have one story, and then we have a shadow story that parallels it. We have a story where God is at work, where God's word is at work through God's messenger, and then we have a shadow story, which parallels it in the basic elements, but where uh, what is happening is very, very different. This is not God sending a message. It's Joab. And if you know anything about Joab, he's a little bit of a sketchy character. Sometimes he does the right thing. Sometimes he doesn't. Sometimes he says some wise things, and sometimes he doesn't. Right? Here we have Joab at work, sending Joab's word through Joab's messenger. Similar elements on the surface, but we have the story. We have God's story, and then we have a shadow story in parallel. In the first story, we have God's messenger going to prick David's conscience to move against his complacent feelings. 
In the second story, what we see happening is we have Joab's messenger going to manipulate David's feelings and emotions against his conscience. David had not received or brought Absalom back into the kingdom for a reason. Honestly, I think what David was doing, just as a, as a father, he could not bring himself to bring down justice on his own son, but his son had been basically self sent into a self-imposed exile, which you could say is a type of punishment. And so David said, let's just leave it at that then. My son is banished from the kingdom. I'm not going to bring him back in. And he had decided to just leave it there. It was not perfect, but he decided to just leave it. And so what this woman is doing through the story that she tells, she's manipulating his emotions, trying to work up his affections in his heart to act against what his conscience had led him to do. You see how the stories, they're parallels on the surface, but one is a shadow of the other. And the real elements of what is happening, the dynamics of the story are in fact reversed. Is God behind this? Not at all. And so the first lesson that we learn about wisdom is this, is that godly wisdom is different from worldly scheming. Godly wisdom is different from worldly scheming. We have these two very seemingly parallel stories, but what is happening on the one hand with, with Nathan's strategy of telling David this story to move his conscience to act and versus the wise woman who is just manipulating David, they are very, very different. One is, uh, is driven by God through God's messenger, preaching God's word to David. The other one is just, is just a, a fortune teller who is an expert in manipulating emotions, and now she is manipulating David. Godly wisdom is different from worldly wisdom. What this means for us is that whenever we, are, we uh, say, okay, well, what does this mean for our own lives? I, there's a lot that we could say, but I think the best, uh, most immediate application would be to say that we need to discern our own plans. Whenever we are devising plans in our life or we are pursuing after goals, we have, we have a course chart before ourselves, which we think is the best course the best way of action, we need to discern, are we following godly wisdom in our plans and in the, the goals that we have for ourselves, the ways that we are trying to act in the world, or are we just devising plans of worldly scheming? So what you need to do is to discern your plans with godly wisdom. Discern your plans with godly wisdom. You might say, okay, but I'm not a fortune teller from Tekoa. True. But our hearts can be deceiving. Our hearts can be deceiving, and we can spend time, invest emotional energy, and maybe even invest other resources into pursuing a plan, into devising a scheme which is not at all from the Lord, but is instead just an ambition of our selfish hearts. And we can come up with all kinds of theologizing ways to justify it. We can come up with all kinds of religious talk and spiritual talk to justify and to, to wash over and to polish those plans which are actually just uh, come out of our selfish heart to deceive those around us and even of our, deceive ourselves that we are acting in godly wisdom when in fact we might not be. So it's important that for whatever goals and plans and actions that you are following in your life, even if it be something that you believe is given to you by God, that we still test 
our hearts and ask, are we acting by godly wisdom or by worldly schemes? So how do we do that? Let me give you a couple of simple steps. The first one is prayer. How do you discern your heart? Discern with godly wisdom? First, you do so in prayer. In prayer, we examine our motivations and our goals. In prayer, we go before the Lord and we, we speak with him. We open our heart before the Spirit so that he might test what is in our heart. So that if there is even uh, selfish ambition or if there are sins, if there are idols that are driving our heart, that are hiding in the darkness that we cannot even see, we open our hearts so that the Lord might shine his light upon whatever is there. Have you ever prayed that God might help you to see the sins and the idols that even you do not see? It's an important prayer to pray, and it's one that you should be praying every single day because your Father who loves you wants to reveal those things to you. The most dangerous sins and the most damaging of idols will be the ones that are operating in the shadows that you don't even realize are there. And friends, if you don't think it's possible that there could be sins and there can be idols operating with immense influence in your life that you aren't even aware of, you're naive. You need the help of the Spirit to see those. So you need to go before the Lord in prayer. The God who loves you, who has nothing but grace, who has, as we sang this morning, mercy for you. Why would you be afraid of opening your heart to him? So go with your heart and with your plans and lay them before the Lord and say, is this yours or is this mine? Is this your wisdom or is this my scheming? Am I being motivated by a holy ambition or is there an idol operating that I'm not even aware of? Bring those things before God. Let him examine your motivations, your goals, and listen to the Spirit's leading. Second, so first we go in prayer to discern our plans. Second, we must use God's word. So second, in God's word, we filter those same things we said before. We filter our motivations and goals as well as our intentions and our plans through what we are doing. It's very possible to have a godly goal in mind and to be tempted to use worldly schemes to get there, to cut corners, to tell half-truths, to, um, you know, make... Maybe you're not outright lying to someone, but you're just giving it, you're giving your, print, your plans and your goals a little bit more polished branding than what they actually deserve so that people will get behind it in the way that you need them to. We can cut corners, we can manipulate, we can be tempted to tell some nice stories, whatever else it might be, to pursue a goal which is good, but in ways which are less than what God would have of us. We need to pursue the right goals, but we also need to pursue them in the right way. Because God does not just care about the ends. He also very much cares about the means. So in prayer, we bring our motivations and our goals before the Lord. In God's word, we filter those same things. And we also, through God's word and through reading stories like this one, and through reading other stories in Scripture, through reading the New Testament, is also a good way to test, are we using the right means as well? as we compare it to what uh, God has revealed in his word. The third one is this. So discern your plans in prayer and God's word. And the third one, discern them through Christian community. In Christian community, we receive godly counsel with our plans. 
It's good to bring in the help of others who can bring, uh, sometimes who can bring in objective viewpoints as they are someone who is also listening to the Spirit of God who can help give you some godly counsel. Maybe sometimes it's not someone who's extremely objective, but someone who, who knows you well, who can listen to your plans and say, you know what, this sounds a lot like something that I, I know you struggle with. This sounds a lot like the idol that we've talked about that you've been fighting. Or they can say, you know what, this sounds like a big step of faith for you. I think that God is behind this. Go to people who you know are opening themselves up to the Spirit as well. Because you don't want to go to people and get advice from those who are just going to give you worldly schemes too. And you don't want to go to those who are just going to tell you what, what you want to hear. You want to go to someone who is going to be listening to the Spirit as well. Because God's Spirit, whenever you open yourself to Him, saying, show me what is in my heart, He might, he might put it on you, on, on your mind and on your heart directly if you listen to Him. But He might also tell you through the godly counsel of a friend or of a pastor, of a group leader whoever else it might be. So open yourself up to Christian community. Let me emphasize one more time, to people who you know are in prayer, are in God's word, and are open to the spirit, because that is the counsel that you want to hear. So godly wisdom is different from worldly scheming. Let's move on to the second lesson. The Jewish uh, sages, so those those Jewish scholars and rabbis who have written, not, not talking about the Old Testament, but outside the Old Testament, the Jewish sages have said that evil always has two victims. Evil first has the outward victim, the, the person who has been sinned against, the victim of a lie or the victim of violence or the victim of offense, whatever else it may be. They're the first victim to be hurt by evil, right? The outward victim. Yet there's also an inward victim of evil, and it is the person who commits the evil act, the person who commits the sin. The Jewish sages said they as well are, in a sense, a victim of evil because the person who chooses wickedness, the person who chooses evil or to commit a sin, they are damaged as well. They, they become slaves to that sin. Their, their hearts, their character, their integrity are damaged by that evil that was done. This idea that evil has an outward dimension, which hurts the victim who receives the sin, but then also an inward dimension, how it damages the evildoer or the sinful person, can be seen so clearly in the life of David. Compare the David of 2 Samuel chapter 14 to the David before, the David earlier, the David who acted, the David who was righteous, the David who was wise and who was discerning, the one who, who had initiative. Whenever there was a problem placed before him, he did not hesitate to, to ask God what to do and then to follow that word, whether it was to go out in battle against the Philistines or whether it was to withhold his sword from Saul. And then, but then you look at this David. In 2 Samuel chapter 14, we see a man who has been damaged by his sin who has been broken down by the evil that he has done. He lacks any power to act in this story. We're so used to seeing David being the one who's in charge or the one who's acting, who's driving the story. Here, he's not in charge. He's not the one acting. He is being acted upon. For all of his accomplishments, 
for all of his victories and for all of the appearances that he has now of being the king sitting on the throne, he lacks the wisdom necessary to see through this situation. And so our second lesson is this, that wisdom is elusive. Wisdom is elusive. Here's what I mean by that. I'm going to explain. There's a scholar named Dale Ralph Davis, and he said, this chapter should haunt the church, not to mention the individual. It is possible to have all the signs of wisdom, plans, strategies, accomplishments, and yet be utterly devoid of it. Look at David sitting on his throne, being being the king over the nation, being the guy who people brought their problems to, being the guy that whenever there was a case needing judgment, he was the judge and he brought justice. In appearance sake, but look at how he acts in this chapter. In a truly inward sense, in, in the place that it really matters, to be able to discern a situation and know what is the right way to respond and then respond, which would be wisdom, we see David completely lacks that. He has all the appearances, and his resume has all the accomplishments. It has all the victories and the successes and the stories, and yet wisdom eludes him here. Friends, wisdom can be elusive. We can pursue in our lives all the appearances. We can rely on past accomplishments or, or past victories that we had or that we were a part of, and yet in the moment, in the now, because we are resting on our laurels of all those accomplishments and because we are putting our trust in having the appearance of wisdom in our life through maybe our affluence or maybe through our, our stature in the community, yet operate without any wisdom. What this means for our life in applying this and understanding that wisdom can be elusive is that we need to pursue true wisdom rather than accomplishments. Pursue true wisdom rather than accomplishments. It can be so easy for us to start looking at, like I said before, our accomplishments, look at our stature in the community that we have, that we have gained for ourselves. Maybe you're someone who is well-respected in, in our church. Or maybe you're someone who has a, 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 a high status, who is well-respected in your place of work. And you can begin to start just skating by and coasting by on that social status, that social and relational capital that you have built up, that influence which you have gained for yourself, and, and through coasting by on that, quit relying on godly wisdom. Quit nurturing the inner character and the inner wisdom that is necessary and that should, be, uh, and that should go with that status that you have for yourself. And instead, just start working by appearances. Start resting on your accomplishments. Maybe you're not at that place yet. We've got a lot of young people here yet. And so no one really respects you in your workplace yet. And, you know, you don't have all that many accomplishments and goals to show for it. Uh, not all that impressive yet. Okay? Yet. All right? You might be impressive one day. So you've got goals and you've got accomplishments that you, that you have set out. You have ideas for how you want to build your resume. And you're dreaming of building up that relational capital. That's, uh, that social capital, and being one of those people of influence in your workplace. There's nothing wrong with any of that, okay? Go for it. Go for it with all the, the, the might you have. But don't place it above developing godly wisdom. 
That is what is most important. Because you can gain that place of top in the office right? or, of, or, or CFO of the company or of, uh, or, or of you know, professor over the department, whatever else it might be, guys. You can attain that place and be a hollow person. Be an absolutely hollow person. Lack any inner integrity. Know how to, you know, get the right things done, but not have true inner godly wisdom that brings character, that brings integrity, that, br- that makes you the kind of person who people can really trust in, who can discern situations, d- discern between what is the right course of action and then follow that right course of action, which is true godly wisdom. We so often place our goals and our ambitions above what should be our ambitions for our inner life. This is equally true, if not even more dangerous in ministry. For those of you guys who are pursuing goals in ministry, whether it be in this church, whether it be goals in ministry beyond this church, it can be so easy to grow in your ministry skills as a as a kids' room teacher, or as a preacher, or as a worship leader, or, or as a, a team leader, or a leadership developer, to develop all those skills and neglect the inner life. Neglect the work that God is doing in you to build the wisdom and integrity and character that should go with those positions and that should go with that respect that comes from people. So pursue true wisdom rather than accomplishments. The last lesson that we come to. I didn't read the whole chapter. Go, go read it later today and this week. But if you read later, it tells us about how, so uh, where we stopped, David said, okay, Absalom can come back. Absalom and his family return. They, uh, they put them in the city, but he's not allowed to see the king for a while. So it tells us a story. At the end of the story, Absalom decides, uh, like I said before, you know, what am I doing here? It's like a home, but I still feel like I'm banished. So he forces Joab's hand to allow him to go see the king. But in between what we read and then whenever it gets there, there's this weird break in the narrative where it just describes Absalom to us. Up until this point, it didn't tell us anything about Absalom. But now it stops and it tells us just what he's like, which is interesting. The Bible doesn't often tell us what someone is like, especially what they look like. So whenever it does tell us, we should take notice because it's important. It has this odd break, and it says Absalom was extremely handsome. Absalom was a stud, okay? It says he was extremely handsome. It said he had long, beautiful hair that he had to cut once a year because it was so, uh, you know, so luscious that it would get so heavy that he'd have to cut it once a year, right? So, you know, this guy, he's he's like a young Arnold Schwarzenegger, Right? He's got the hair, the muscles, the handsome. Like, like he is a stud. So it says he's a stud, and, it said, and that he had, and, the, and it tells us about his family. It says that he, he had some sons and that he had a daughter. So it just stops and it tells us about Absalom and his household, and it's kind of odd. And then it moves along with the rest of the story. So it's weird, but it's also kind of reminiscent. Like I said before, it's important when the Bible tells us things like this. It's reminiscent because it might remind us of some other leaders. It, re- it reminds us of how impressed the people of Israel were with Saul's appearance. 
You remember why they wanted Saul to be their king? Did it have anything to do with his character? Did it have anything to do with his service, his proven service to the nation already? You remember what it was? They were impressed with what he looked like. Like, oh, look at that guy. That's that guy that we want to be our king. It's reminiscent of Saul. This young, handsome uh, guy who's full of vitality and life. He's got the He's got the, uh, the, the poster-perfect Israelite family, right? It tells about him to, be, to remind us of a, this guy who sounds like another Saul, who once again, similar like what we said before, has all the outward appearance and the outward impressiveness, but as we're going to see as we continue in the next few chapters, lacks the inner character. So our last lesson is this. Wisdom is a matter of inner character. We've seen that wisdom is different from worldly scheming. Wisdom is something that can be elusive if we do not place it at the center of our goals. And what we need to understand is that wisdom is a matter of inner character. We live in a society that insists on style of, over substance, that insists on cosmetics over content, and manner over matter. There's a, a, there's a very famous um, English or, or literature professor who was also a philosopher of technology named Marshall McLuhan, uh, who wrote back in the mid-20th century. And he wrote that we live in a time where the makeup artist is more important than the speechwriter when it comes to our politics. Because we live in a time where we are more impressed with the outward appearances, and we judge very much on the outward appearances and the outward successes and the outward resumes of those we choose to place in leadership positions over us rather than the inner character of those people and the wisdom and the integrity over those people. We do this in our society. We absolutely live in an Absalom society. We can see this in our politics all the time. But woe to the church that embraces an Absalom-like thinking as well. Woe to the church that places its emphasis on appearances and on outward impressiveness and outward accomplishments rather than inner character, not just among its leaders, but also among its members and among its ministries and among the the goals that it sets to accomplish for itself. Contrast what our society pursues and what so many of our churches also pursue for their leaders versus what the New Testament describes as what qualifies a leader. Go to first, uh, first Timothy, go to Titus, and you can read about what Paul says qualifies leaders in the church. And it's not, their, it's not how good-looking they are. It's not how much personal wealth they have built up. It's not how uh, poster-friendly or Instagram-friendly they or their family is. It is their character. It's that they are above reproach. It's that they're able to teach. It's that, uh, it's, it, you know, and it goes through. Wisdom is a matter of inner character. So many of us can start falling into our image-driven culture, our Absalom-driven society, and start trying to make our lives something like what our society tells us should be like, one that is outwardly impressive, that's really Instagrammable, but lacks inner strength and character and wisdom. And so what this means for us as we close is invest in what builds wisdom and inner character. 
Invest in those things that builds wisdom and inner character. Friends, like I said, the goals that you might have for your life, in, in, in your career, for your family, and, and even if they are ambitious goals, guys, there's nothing wrong with that. That's good. Go for it. But not at the cost and not above, and do not put more into that than you do in investing into your inner character and in, in, in trying to cultivate godly wisdom. Whenever we do this, we become more like Jesus. We become more like Jesus who did not come in outward impressiveness, but who came driven with inner, uh, whose beauty lie in his inner character. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we, we ask that you would help us to see the lessons that we have to learn from this story that lacks such little wisdom in it. Help us to discern our hearts, to look at all the goals that we have for ourselves, the, the ambitions that we are pursuing, and to question, are they coming from you? Are they the goals that you would have for us? Are we pursuing the right ends but not using the right means? Lord, do not let us fall into the trap that our world and a society has fallen into where we pursue outward appearance over the inner substance. Let us be people who cultivate godly wisdom in prayer and by saturating ourselves in your word, who cultivate inner character and integrity by living lives that are marked by repentance and obedience, consistently turning away from our sin and slaying our idols and opening our hearts before you so that we might respond by walking in righteousness. Lord, build us up as people who would be filled with wisdom, who would discern the situations we are in, who would discern the cultural moment that we find ourselves in, in in our city and in our nation, discerning what is the right path to choose and then following it. Lord, do not let us become weakened and damaged by our sin, left in a state where we lack any initiative like David. But through repentance and obedience and your spirit transforming us, help us to become people of wisdom and of action that we might pursue those godly goals with godly ambition, driven and ordered by the wisdom that you supply. We pray this in the name of our, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.